We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 today. I, this past year, preached through the book of Titus at Hope Baptist Church. And the, the section we're going to be in today in, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, is really the, the theological heart of the book of Titus. It's, it's the, the center, it's, it's that, that section from which all the other exhortations flow. Um, would you join me in prayer today? And then we will uh, dive into the message today. Heavenly Father, we turn our eyes to you. We thank you for this assembly of saints. We thank you for the joy of gathering in your name. And we ask that this time would be a blessing to our souls, that it would encourage us and challenge us onward, and that our, our eyes would see today and, and we would believe and respond to this, this grace that has come, but a grace that, that trains, that, that is effective in our lives. Continue this work, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Begin just asking, what is, what is theology? Um, if, if, for, form a definition, theology, or or maybe uh, to ask kind of a, a, a squishy question, how does the, the, the word theology make you feel? The idea of doing theology. Um, to, to some, the word theology can sound very, very academic. You know, um, the, the, the church has plenty of theology geeks. Uh, people who just kind of like theology for the sake of theology. But simply put, theology is the study of God. It's, it's knowing God. If we are to do it rightly, we, we know God that we may worship God aright. Rightly pursued theology is our t- desire to know and to love and to respond rightly to God in worship. You know, some, some who claim the name of Christ just want a Christian ethic. You know, I want to be a Christian. I want to be this kind of uh, a, a good American, you know, and Americans are Christians, so we, we just kind of have this tell-me-what-to-do attitude. But the reality is, is that any sort of Christian ethic, any real Christian devotion must be anchored in doctrine. It must have a fertile soil. It must be planted in the soil of Theology. It must be planted in biblical truth. Right theology always leads to Christian living. There's plenty of people who know the word and they know doctrine, but they don't live like it. But if we have some sort of Christian living without real theology, it's a forgery. And so what I want to look at today as we look at Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 is the inseparable link between doctrine, between salvation by grace, and what Christ is doing in us and transforming us and making us live for him. Look with me at Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. I'm uh, reading from the English Standard Version tonight. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As we listen to the the word of God today, we see that God's grace both saves and sanctifies. The same grace of God which saves a people for himself is the same grace that then changes that people, that renews them, that makes them like God. So as we look at this text today, I want to consider six aspects of God's grace. I'll give them all to you and then we'll go through them uh, one by one. But the six aspects of God's grace are the arrival of grace, the scope of grace, the tutelage of grace, the culmination of grace, the cost of grace, and finally the purpose of grace. Give those once more and then we'll dive right in. The arrival, the scope, the tutelage, the culmination, the cost, and the purpose of grace. So first, we see the arrival of grace. The grace of God has appeared. Now, this passage is given as the foundation for what preceded it. In Titus 2.1, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then it gets into all sorts of ethical exhortations. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, younger women, younger men, slaves. And it goes through all these different categories of, of Christians, of members of the body of Christ, and challenges them in light of sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, good theology, necessarily results in holy practice. And so we we come to this where it says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is the foundation. This This is the solid bedrock upon which Christian living is built. Without a gospel grounding, there is no true Christian ethic, only a man made counterfeit. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, the unmerited favor of God bestowed freely upon men has appeared. This is the outflow of God's loving purpose for his elect. This is the outflow of God's intention to save a people for himself. And it's interesting here, it says the grace of God has appeared. This this idea of, of the grace of God appearing This idea of of it shining forth, the same terminology is used of the arrival of Christ himself. Um, In in Luke 179, speaking of the advent of the Messiah, I believe it's it's, uh, Zechariah's prophecy. He says he has appeared to give light to those who sit in darkness. That term give light is that same idea of, of, of the grace of God appearing, shining forth, illumining the purpose of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In Greek literature of that time, the the same term, the the grace appearing, was often used of kind of a a hero arriving on the scene and helping one who is weak and, and helpless. See, God's grace is not merely a doctrine. Yes, we believe in salvation by grace alone. 
It's not merely the arrival of a doctrine, but the arrival of a person, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ that the grace of God is made known. There is no grace anywhere but Christ. Christ is the giving of God's grace to man, the culmination of his grace. He, through his incarnation and perfect life, his suffering, his death, has provided himself as the solution to man's plight through which we can come to know the very grace of God. John Calvin said that we see our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. In short, since such rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from its fountain and from no other. God sent his grace forth in the eternal Son, taken on human flesh. His Son added humanity to himself in order to rescue fallen men. When it says the grace of God has appeared, it's not just saying that, oh, we came to know this doctrine of grace. It's saying that Christ came. Christ brought the deliverance we need. The grace of God has appeared. The second aspect of God's grace is the scope of grace. It says, bringing salvation for all people. Now, this is not teaching a universalism where every man without exception is saved. What it's confessing is that through Christ, salvation is available to all who would believe. This is a message to the ends of the earth. Christ is the only Savior to Jew or Gentile wherever men are found. He is the one and only salvation. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Or 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, in particular those who respond to the proclamation of the gospel and believe on Christ. So the gospel is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. We are to go forth and call all people, whoever they are, wherever they are, to repent and believe on Christ with the promise that if they will trust in him, they will know salvation. Calvin again said, Just as the one sun and its light are for all human beings in their life, so the Father's grace ushers in the light of a new day for every human being without distinction. All who would call upon the Lord will be saved. It leads us thirdly to the tutelage of grace. And notice the utterly inseparable connection. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first thing it does. Training us to renounce ungodliness. The very same grace that saves is an effective grace which trains the believer. Sanctification must never be severed from salvation. Where men are saved by Christ, they are also trained by Christ. The true grace of God always is effective in its recipients. 
And any teaching that suggests that believers can go securely forth, having some assurance, some security, without any heart transformation, any reality of this grace outworking in their lives, is a gross perversion of that grace. I mean, Christ has made it explicitly clear here that the same grace that saves sanctifies. There's a whole movement in, in um, evangelical circles that, that tries to decouple that and say that it's possible for a person to be saved and eternally secure, but to go on and utterly renounce the faith. You know, this, this idea that you can have this eternal security while abandoning the faith. It's a perversion of the grace of God. The, the term here for training us is the, the Greek term paiduo. Um, it, it speaks of an intensive, ongoing development. The, the, the training of a tutor for one of his students. It can speak both of the, the painful driving out of sin, the chastisement of a tutor, but then also the intensive process of, of training, instructing, and bringing the student in conformity with the will of God. This comes to us through the preaching of the word as we heed and apply what is preached. It comes as we live among the church and we are rubbing shoulders with each other and challenging each other to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. This, this is experienced most foundationally in the local church, gathered, covenanted together, committed to one another. You know, this training grace, it goes on to expand on this. What does it train us in? It has both negative and positive elements. Now, throughout the New Testament, there's, there's the, the put-offs and the put-ons, and we see that here. Training us... To renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. What are we to renounce? This is a strong word speaking of a full denial of an utter repudiation of these things. These things are to be set behind us. They're no more to have a place in our lives. We have come to value Christ above all. He is our treasure. He is our reward. If we delight supremely in him, should not sin pale against him? Should not the allure of sin be shown for all of its vileness against his glory and beauty? It says we renounce ungodliness, we say no to it, we, we, we do away with it. We say no to ungodliness, any pattern of life that is contrary to God's way. Or worldly passions and lusts. That's the, the, the impulses of the flesh spurred on by sin to do what is pleasing to fallen man. And so this is the putting off. We put off ungodliness and worldly passions, worldly lusts. Positively and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The life of the believer is not merely one of saying no to stuff but it's to be a positive pursuit of what is pleasing to God. 
We are to seek these things with a wholehearted effort. The three things that are noted here touch, I think, on number one, personal conduct, this self-control. Secondly, our relation to others, this upright lives. And then finally, our godly lives, our relationship to God. It's it's all-encompassing. This is to be a comprehensive transformation. Self-control is a sober mastery over all of life. If you were to take time to skim back through the previous verses from verse 1 down through 10, you'll see that that concept of self-control is, is kind of the one summary idea there. You know, old men, and, old men need to be self-controlled, and older women need to know how to train younger women in self-control, and younger women, they need to be self-controlled. And so do younger men. It's actually the only admonition given to younger men. You just be self-controlled and everything else will follow. Be in control of your passions, of your desires. Have a mastery over your life. And sin will be under control. Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. This, this idea of being upright, it's the, the, the term for, for walking justly walking uprightly. It means that God's standard has become ours and in our public conduct, we live accordingly. We understand justice. We understand what is right and good. And finally, godly lives. We give ourselves to those things that honor God. We live for his glory in all things. When does this take place? When does God affect these things in our heart? When does this this training grace of God begin? Is this just something for heaven to come? You know, well, one day we'll be made holy. It says that these happen in the present age. God's grace produces transformation in this life. Not fully, not finally. You know, none of us can ever say we've arrived. There's, there's certain segments of, of, uh, of the church that claim that people can have a perfect holiness in this life. I actually talked to a guy once who said he hadn't sinned in like five or seven years or something, but he just lied right there, so that would be an issue there. It's never final, but it's real in this life. You know, all Christians believe that Saints will be holy in the age to come, but this text tells us that such a change begins in the present age. God's effecting this by his saving grace and his sanctifying grace here and now. Holiness is not just for the age to come, but now. As we are residents of this age, as we are elect exiles, as Peter calls us, we increasingly live as residents of the coming age where Christ will reign as king over all. We're we're living in part like we will fully then. That leads us fourthly to the culmination of grace. Verse 13 says that we are waiting for our blessed hope. I don't normally preach twice on a Sunday, so I've got to keep the vocal cords. 
lubed up here. Verse 13, the culmination of grace, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of, uh, the, the Greek, it's called a genitive phrase, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, as we, as we look at this, as we think about the blessed hope which is spoken of here, don't forget the context of the saving and sanctifying grace of God. Christian obedience is girded behind us by the finished work of Christ with the hope of the coming of Christ laying before us. You know, we have, we have a, the finished work of Christ behind us and the sure completion of his work coming. And this waiting is no dull, passive resignation, but an eager, confident expectation. The same word for waiting was used of Simeon, who was waiting for the Lord's Christ. And he got to lay his eyes on him at his first coming. Or of Anna, who likewise was longing for the Messiah. Speaks of our blessed hope. A hope that lies before us, that brings joy to our hearts now, that will bring a fullness of joy then, as we will behold the consummation. Such hope compels a godly living as we long for that coming day. In the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, it says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, Till with that vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. What is that hope? What is the hope that we long for? What is the culmination of this present age? What are we waiting for? It says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not just looking for the fact of his coming, but the radiance, the splendor of his coming. The, the beauty, the, just the, the soul-stopping beauty of when he comes. You know, in the, the wintertime especially, the, the nights can be cold. Um, it gets maybe a little colder up in the, the north country where I am, um, more, more consistently at least. But um, if you have those long, cold nights... And then you wait for those, those, those rays of sun. And it's amazing how, especially this time of year into February and March, how the, 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 the sunlight, when it comes across the horizon, just brings such a warmth, such a beauty, such a joy. It took me a while to get out of church today because I think everyone was just happy from the sun. You know, everyone was feeling good today and, and enjoying talking. And the idea of Christ's coming is much like that. It's like the, 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 the appearing of the sun after a long, cold, dark night that brings warmth and joy once more. The hope for which we wait, for which we long, is the coming of Christ in all his glory. Now this is a condensed way of speaking of a complex event. You know, this, this coming of Christ looks to the, the rapture, 
the tribulation, the bodily return of Christ, the, the, the resurrection, the kingdom established, the final judgment, the new heavens, the new earth, all that's coming inaugurated by Him appearing for His bride. And who is it that's coming? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I won't get into all the, the technical details, but, but do note that this is one of the, the clear confessions that Jesus is God. In the, in the Greek, the way that the structure is, there's one article and it, it speaks of the great God and the Savior Jesus Christ. And there's only one article, one the. And what that tells us is that they're both referring to the same person, Jesus Christ. He is both God and Savior. This, this text clearly declares that Jesus Christ is both our great God and our Savior the one who is coming, the one who we are waiting for is very God in human flesh, Jesus Christ. God in glorified human flesh. The fifth aspect of God's grace today that we're going to consider is the cost of grace. The cost of grace. He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. This, this God and Savior, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, gave himself. The means of our redemption was Christ laying down his own incarnate life on our behalf. It says, for us. This is substitutionary language. Him in our place. Him taking what we deserve. He took our sin upon himself and suffered the just penalty in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For whom did Christ lay himself down? It says, for us. There was a particularness to his redemption. There was a direction at his chosen ones. Christ laid himself down for his elect. In John 10, the the good shepherd discourse. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Christ gave himself in particular on behalf of his chosen ones. His sacrificial death did not merely make salvation possible with the possibility that none would be saved. That's a, that's a necessary conclusion from the Arminian perspective is that it's possible that none would be saved. His sacrificial death was accomplished to make salvation actual for his chosen ones. It didn't just make it possible, it made it actual. It made it 
happen. Christ accomplishes what he intends. And this particular redemption was also a purposeful redemption. And so that leads us finally, number six, to the purpose of grace. He gave himself for us, purpose, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To redeem us. In our fallen states, we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to sinful desires. We were bound for the just judgment they deserved. You could take a look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, which chronicles the, the state of fallen man. No one seeks for God. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Or Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which speaks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Christ gave himself to redeem us. He laid himself down on our behalf. He's rescued us from lawlessness. He delivers us from our enslavement to sin and its rightful judgment. Later in Romans 3, says that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God both has dealt with the penalty of our sin in laying it on another, and thus he can justly count us righteous. We're not only saved from the penalty of lawlessness, but from its power, from its, from its slavery upon us, from its utter control of our lives. It says he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Even as we're redeemed, he has purposed our purification. Such a purification is central to the purpose of the gospel. It's as central to the purpose of the gospel as our redemption from sin. He doesn't just save us from the just judgment, but he saves us to be transformed. In Christ, God has done what man could never accomplish. He takes lost men who are dead in their sin. He provides the substitute of Christ. And then he breathes new life into us by his Spirit, who begins to renew us and to purify us, to remake us in his likeness. In working our redemption, he likewise commits to our purification. Notice here, it says, a people for his own possession. This this is the same language that was used in the Old Testament of Israel being God's special possession, a, a treasured people. If you are in Christ, he delights in you. He's... He's won you for himself, and he, 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 he rejoices in you. You are a treasure to him. He's not merely a willing Savior, but an eager rescuer and a cherishing keeper of all of his own. Being purchased at the cost of his own blood, he will treasure you for all eternity. 
the hymn, Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken. It says, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear or care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think what Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Think, think that Christ died to win you as his own special possession. And what are these redeemed, purified, treasured possessions to be all about who are zealous for good works? And oftentimes, zeal gets thrown around like, oh, that person's a little over the top. You know, don't, you don't want to be too zealous because, well, then you'll stand out and people will think you're weird. God works in order to bring about a delight in us for things that please him. Good works delight him. He, he has given himself to have a people who are zealous to serve him. A people who are utterly passionate about honoring him. He has saved us in order to create a zeal within us, a a burning fire to serve him, to honor him, to live for him. The pursuit of good works is to be a driving passion of the redeemed. Remember, good works, and I'm sure you've all heard this many, many times, but good works can never produce or contribute to your salvation. Outside of grace... Anything that men may call a good work is itself sinful. Whatever it does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. And when fallen men try to hold good works forth in an attempt of righting themselves before God, in reality they are heaping up sin as they continue to reject the Savior. But for those who know Christ, who are fired by a grasp of such a great salvation, they go on to eagerly serve and live for him. As we come to comprehend the greatness of our redemption by God's free grace, it's like a a strong wind blown in the sails of obedience that drives us onward. I don't know how many of you, if you were to take a walk out in the woods, could identify a beech tree. How many of you could identify a beech tree? Huh, good. I'm impressed. All right. There's probably more of them down here than up where I am. But the beech trees are, are somewhat unique because they hold their leaves all winter long. You know, they have that old dead growth from last season. And what finally makes the leaves fall off is when the, the new heat And light of spring come. And there's new vitality there. There's new life there. And what what happens then? There's a, a new growth that begins to force out that which is dead. And there's new life given there. New life in Christ produces a growth. It produces a zeal for holiness. Even as it drives out those things that are not pleasing to God. God's grace in Christ is effective. Will he fail in his purpose? 
If, if God has purposed to save you or me, will he fail not only to bring about that person's salvation, but also their sanctification? If a saint is not sanctified, Christ has failed. If, if a saint is not changed, Christ has not done what he has said he would accomplish. Those who are in Christ will certainly be a transformed people. As we see this, this vital connection between the grace of God that appears bringing salvation being likewise that grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. We've, we've seen the arrival, the scope, the tutelage, the culmination, the cost, and the purpose of grace. So I just ask you today, do you know the saving grace of God in Christ? Are you clinging to him? Are you trusting on him to be your savior? Have you run to him for refuge? And if you are a saint, if you are in Christ, how is that life in Christ being evidenced? You know, I think there's probably a lot of assessment each one of us could do. There's a section on us uh, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passion, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I think we could spend a lot of time pondering that, thinking about our what we give ourselves to, thinking about our entertainment, thinking about how we speak, how we act, how we live. Are we evidencing the effective grace of God in our lives? And where do we come short? Because we all do. None of us are are where we ought to be. Would you join me in prayer? I'll hand it off. Almighty God, we stand astounded at your your purpose of salvation, that what you purpose you will absolutely accomplish without fail. And we marvel at that. We, we marvel that you have appointed this great plan of salvation. You have appointed a Savior in Jesus Christ. And he will accomplish what he purposes. He will never fail. Lord, we ask that where you have given life here, that it would continue to bear a rich harvest, that you would fire a zeal in us, fire a zeal in this church to bear forth transformed lives into this community. And to go forth boldly declaring Christ to those lost in sin. Give a passion to make Christ known, we ask. We thank you for redeeming grace. We thank you for Christ and his full, his full supply for our salvation and sanctification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.